I kind of like the the joke that there are two kinds of people in the world. Maybe you've heard those kinds of jokes before. There's two types of people in the world, those who like to drink coffee and those who have good taste. Or uh, There's two types of people in the world, those who like to repeat themselves and those who like to repeat themselves. There are two types of people in the world, those that finish what they start. And in this text, uh, we're going to be looking in a sense and what we see in creation, there really are two types of humans in the world. God made men and God made women. Amen. And we see that in this uh, passage this evening. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 25. Lord willing, next week we'll come back and, and focus a little bit more at the, the final few verses and thinking more specifically about marriage. But tonight I want to, to think about God's creation of woman and what that tells us about his design for men and women. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here at the very beginning of this passage, we find the first declaration in which God says something is not good. Up until this point in time, he's consistently said it was good, it was good, it was good. And now he stops and says, this is not good. In particular, what is not good is for man to be alone. That everything in creation we see needs something else. That man himself cannot live by himself. Certainly we see from creation he's dependent on God. But also we see that mankind is meant to be dependent on each other. That there's an interdependence that is taught here in this passage. So while we see again consistently that God is the one who decides what is good. I mentioned this last week when we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's the one who says this is good or this is not good. So God is evaluating and God judges and he determines it is not good for man to be alone. Man didn't come to this realization on his own. Man didn't have this sense of loneliness and then come to God and say, well, what are we going to do about this? God said, no, I'm going to tell you this is not good. But God immediately begins to, to create a remedy. He doesn't simply point out this isn't good. He immediately begins to rectify the situation. So in verse 19, we see him beginning to create a remedy. And this remedy, back in verse 18, I, I skipped this. He's looking specifically for a helper that is suitable for him. A helper is a word that's actually used several times in the Old Testament. One of its most common usages is actually talking about God being Israel's helper. And so 
The word itself doesn't imply any kind of, of low status. It's simply talking about someone who is serving someone else, someone who is helping someone else. And this helper is described as suitable or fit. You might remember the King James, a help meet, one that matches up, one that corresponds to man. And so to begin to rectify this in verse 19, out of the Lord, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I mentioned last week that some people point to chapter two as, as having conflicts with uh, chapter one in the description of creation. This is one of the things they point to. They say, well, aren't the animals for- created before mankind? And there's two ways that I think we can understand this to help us to see that there's not a conflict between chapter one and chapter two. The NIV, for example, translates this had formed. Uh, you might have a translation that uses that because that is a possibility that it's basically saying he'd already done this. He'd already formed them and now he's bringing them. But I think it's, it's very possible as well that he's simply forming creatures to bring to Adam. He's already created creatures. Now he's creating specific creatures to come to bring to Adam so that he would be able to name them. Now, why does he do this? Is God searching for a companion for Adam? He says, obviously not. God knows none of these animals are going to be a helper that's suitable for Adam. And so why does God do this? Well, I think one of the reasons is he's, he's beginning to allow Adam to do what he made him to do. And he made him to exercise dominion. And so he's beginning to allow him to exercise dominion because Adam begins to name them. So we see being described here to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. I believe I mentioned this when we were working through chapter one, but in chapter one, we see God consistently naming things. He calls the greater light the sun. He calls the lesser light the moon. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. He's naming these things. And in doing so, he's demonstrating his authority. I'm in charge, and so I get to say, this is what this is. In a sense, Adam's doing the same thing now. He's, he's reflecting the image of God and exercising dominion over the created realm. And so he's naming these animals. But I think he also does it to help Adam to see that these animals do not correspond to him. They are not suitable for him, which is what we find at the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. This is a good reminder for us, perhaps. I um, mentioned a few different times that our world doesn't consistently make the distinction between men and animals that scripture would have us to make. So we have people who talk about being cat moms or, or dog grandparents. And, and, and the point here is as if they're part of the family in some way. I grew up in West Virginia. Most of you know that. And so in country songs, what do we talk about? You know, wives, trucks, and dogs. And maybe you've heard the story before of the man who put an ad in the newspaper saying, my wife you know, took my truck and my dog and drove off. Please let me know if you find the truck and dog. And the point there is as if these are more valuable. Uh, dogs are described as man's best friend. And yet, from a biblical perspective, they cannot be man's true companion. It's not suitable. It's not really fit. Animals are not the same as people. 
And so as Adam looks through all these different things, he realizes none of these are suitable for him. And so what happens is in verse 21, God makes someone who is suitable. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Ribs is, is possible, is what the, the words just being described here. But I think it's probably better simply to say he took from his side. Now, the word is used often just to describe something that's on the side of something. And so I think it probably wasn't just his rib. It probably was a portion of his side, both flesh and bone. I think that makes sense then as well when Adam then later on says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And so he takes from Adam's side. And what does he begin to do? He begins to form woman. And it's interesting that God chooses to create woman from the side of Adam. Already in this chapter, he's made man. And what what did he make man from? The dirt. And he mentions making animals. And what did he make animals from? Look again at verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. He made them from the dirt. And yet, when it comes to the woman, for the first time, he makes a living creature from another living creature. And why does he do this? Well, I think it's ultimately to demonstrate that they match up with each other, and they are the same. They're the same substance. This is Adam's own body. In some ways, this might be in Paul's mind in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Because the original wife was Adam's body. That's the way you're supposed to think of it. And Matthew Henry pointed out, and I don't know that we can say this definitively, but I think it certainly makes sense. He said this, that God made woman from man's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on by him, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from close to his heart to be loved by him. The language used here, it says in verse 22, the Lord God fashioned or built into a woman the rib which he'd taken from the man. And again, we see God's special care and design. Throughout this section, there's an emphasis on, on God's intentionality. He's recognizing at the beginning, this is not good. So then he begins to form this woman to deal with what he recognized was not good. And it implies a a design and beauty and stability in which he is forming this woman. At the end, he now brings her to the man. It's almost as if this is his gift. And Adam, who's been in a deep sleep, wakes up from his sleep. And in verse 23, we find the first human words ever recorded. And what are they? Well, they're a poem. And the poem, in some ways, might seem a little strange to us. Yet the first part, I don't think would be that shocking. When he says, this is now, and in some ways, that's a kind of exclamation. You could perhaps think of it as this, at last. This is what I've been looking for. 
and I finally found him. I looked through all the animals that God brought to me, but this is it. This is what I have been longing for. This is what I have been looking for. Why? Because this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That we are made of the same stuff. We are corresponding with each other. Now, some people have even noted that this kind of language we see used elsewhere in the scripture, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to not only indicate that we are from the same substance, but in some ways, therefore, we are committed to each other. And I think certainly, uh, in the broader context, as we consider the teaching about marriage, there is a kind of commitment that is made to one another. So perhaps Adam here, as he's saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's saying as well, this is the one to whom I'm committing myself. That is what we see happening later on in this passage. He leaves father and mother and clings to his wife. And so Adam then names her woman because she's taken out of man. And, and the reason that that's used is because in the Hebrew, in some ways it's similar to what we have in the English. Man and woman. It's the same kind of root word with a little addition to it. And so they match with each other. They correspond with each other. Which is what the whole point was, to find a helper that corresponded or was suitable. And in verse 24 and 25, we see God then talking about the issue of marriage. And Lord willing, as I said, next week, we'll look at that in more detail. Now I want to take a little bit of time to try to think through what this passage tells us about God's design of humanity, and in particular, God's design of men and women. As I mentioned, as we started this series, we're trying to, in many ways, develop a biblical worldview. We're trying to to see the world, to see reality in line with what God says about it with his purposes and his intentions. And so what should we see and think about reality? The first thing we should see is that humanity is meant to be communal. That it's not good for man to be alone. And I don't think that statement is purely saying it's not good for him not to be married. I think it's pointing to the fact that mankind, being made in the image of God, is meant for fellowship. Just as the Father, Son, and the Spirit commune with each other, that mankind was meant to have social interaction. And so we see that in the Garden of Eden, in this paradise, it was not yet complete until there was someone to share it with. In particular, we see that paradise for mankind was not really complete until woman got there. Which maybe. We should think about a little bit is in our culture, sometimes you have men who want to act as if the world would be better if women were not there. And scripture would tell us that's completely false. That mankind needs womankind. Secondly, we see in this passage that men and women are complementary. I don't mean they complement each other by saying nice things about each other, which is good, but they complement each other with an E. The point there is that they match up with each other. That man was designed 
with woman, where woman was designed in order to fit perfectly with man, in order to match up perfectly with man. And so there is a sameness and equality in being. That they're both made in the image of God. That woman is made from man to show this is the same substance, flesh of flesh, bone of bones. Which hopefully would push back a little bit against saying men and women are completely different from each other. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the, the book or you've probably at least heard the phrase, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And the point of that uh, teaching is, is as if, say, men and women don't get each other at all. It's as if they're from completely different planets. And we will say that men and women are different from each other. But in a sense, we start with the fact that there's a oneness. There's a unity. That they're both from God, and then they're both from this earth and each other. And yet, there is a distinction in function and role. That God made them to be different. He did not make, when he made woman, something that was identical in every way to man. He made them intentionally distinct from each other and different from each other so that they would be able to complement each other, so they would be able to match up with each other. And so we were made to be different. We were designed in God's good creation not to be exactly identical. In particular, we see functions and roles that are different, that men are meant to lead. And in nature, in creation, in this passage, we see a kind of a hierarchy, a kind of order. God's at the top. God's in charge of all things. God's the one who gets to decide right and wrong. God's the one that gets to command all things. And then he sets up man as over the rest of creation as his vice regent. And within humanity, he sets up specifically the male, the man, to be over the woman. And then they together are to be over the animals. And when we, Lord willing, in a few weeks, get to the fall of mankind, what do we see? That order, God, man, woman, animals, is turned on its head. Because what happens? The animals, the serpent, comes to the woman, who then tells the man what to do. And all of them are ignoring what God has said. So there is a kind of order, a kind of hierarchy that we see within this passage. That man is called to lead. In fact, I think in some ways we didn't really look at verse 24. But verse 24 even reinforces this idea. Because in verse 24, it says, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And you don't take from that passage, well, a woman isn't to leave her father and mother. In fact, functionally, the way that this tended to work itself out within the nation of Israel is the, the man would actually stay within his parents' family, even while there is a separation, which we'll talk more about, Lord willing, next week. The wife would join into his family. So it's not as though the woman doesn't leave father and mother. But why is it focused on the man? Because the man's the one who's initiating this relationship. The man's the one who's leading into it. And she's expected to follow his lead. That men are meant, men are responsible for forming and protecting the family. That men are to work for and to guard women. We saw last week the command that God gave to man. And it's just a man. He is to work and to keep the garden. He is to keep it. He is to guard it. He is to protect it. I think in many ways, we, we see that as, as being a foundational truth for husbands 
but I think probably more broadly for men in general. That men aren't meant to be protectors. I've heard one person say it. They're to be the first ones in when there's potential danger and the last ones out when people are trying to escape. That's why when there's danger, what is it always? Women and children first. Because men are meant to care for them and to protect them and to lay down their lives, to sacrifice themselves for them. So I've said, I, you know, if, if something's going on and there's noise in the house, I don't nudge my wife and say, go check on it. I get up and go check on it. And if we're walking along and, and someone comes up, I think generally the expectation would be what? The man's going to step in front of any woman who's with, not necessarily even his wife, because he's going to lead, he's going to protect, he's going to guard, because this is what God has made men to do. And we see this even in the creation order. Paul, for example, points to this in 1 Timothy 2. God made man first, and then he made the woman. And as well, even even in that passage, again, I mentioned verse 24. A man leaving his father and mother, what's the implication? Well, normally as a, a boy grows up, he's under the authority of his father and mother. Now, in this context, there is no other father and mother. Yet the point there is the expectation, even in creation, that there is this kind of structure, this order within the family. We see man naming the woman. I mentioned there is a kind of authority that's demonstrated from that. So Adam names the animals and he names the woman. Now, he doesn't interact with the woman in the same way that he interacts with the animals. We've already pointed that out. That he's to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. He's not to exercise dominion over the woman. They together are to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. And yet there is a kind of authority that he has over the woman. And certainly God addresses Adam first as we go on in this passage. After the sin, after man's sin, when God comes, he doesn't go to Eve and say, why'd you eat the fruit? He goes to Adam. Because Adam's ultimately responsible for it. So we see consistently in this passage that men are meant to lead and that women are meant to help. That women are meant to help the man. It's not the other way around. God did not make men to be a helper for the woman, but woman for the man. The woman does not receive her own commands and instructions. That before God ever made man, in verses 16 and 17, the Lord commanded Adam concerning the trees in the garden. And in verse uh, 15, he puts him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And so when a woman comes along, she doesn't get a new set of instructions. She doesn't get a new set of commands. Instead, she's to see her commands coming out of what God has called Adam to do. Now, in some ways, our culture tells us being a helper or being a servant is lowly. It's not just our culture. Most cultures tend to think that way. But from a Christian perspective, what is greatness? Christ says, the greatest of all will be what? Servant of all. So this is not a demeaning role. 
This is a role in which there is great dignity and honor. Now, I I think the focus generally in chapter two is on marriage. And so I, I think we need to be careful in pushing it out beyond the roles of husband and wife. We do see the New Testament pointing to this order and design and then saying this also then applies to the church, that men are to lead in the church. And I think that probably we're expected in some ways to say this has ramifications in society more broadly. Now, the specifics of how that's worked out aren't as clear in Scripture. We're very clearly told what the dynamic is supposed to be between husband and wife. What the dynamic is supposed to be within the church. We're not necessarily told how that flushes itself out more broadly. But I think we're expected to assume there is some type of way in which the fact that men and women are different, designed by God in different ways, and have different functions in the family and in the church, that would manifest itself in some ways more broadly. And then just two reasons to, to, I think, draw that conclusion. One is, even if this is talking about in the home, where do men and women learn what it means to be a man and a woman? In the home. And so the kind of manhood that young boys see lived out from their fathers is going to be reflective of this reality. The kind of womanhood that girls are going to see lived out in their mothers will be reflective of this reality. Secondly, as parents, one of your jobs is to prepare your children for marriage. And in a sense, the expectation wouldn't be, we're not going to worry about what it looks like until you're married. And then we're going to expect you now to begin to adapt to the role of what a husband's supposed to be, adapt to role to what a wife is supposed to be. It doesn't really work that way, does it? You're preparing your sons in order to be husbands. You're preparing your daughters in order to be wives. And so the kind of characteristics that a godly husband is meant to have, you're trying to inculcate in your sons, that a godly wife is supposed to have, you're trying to inculcate in your daughters. So I think it's meant to be in some ways, in every aspect of our life, we are to live as men and women. And this certainly does go against some of the false worldviews in our day. A feminism that tries to say men and women are interchangeable. Anything a man can do, a woman can do, and probably better. And yet scripture would say, no, no, God didn't make them the same. He made them different. What's interesting in our day, transgenderism, I think in many ways, takes that to the next conclusion. Well, there's really no difference between men and women, then really there's no difference in biology at all. And so it's just what you think about yourself. And you have some in the feminist movement who take a strong stand, who are saying, no, we need to protect womanhood. And if you ask, well, what actually is womanhood as opposed to manhood? At best, they can say, well, there's a chromosomal difference. But beyond that, it's really hard to say what makes a woman a woman versus what makes a man a man. And your scripture would say, no, there are differences. Yes, there are biological differences, but that is meant to flow out into ways in which we act, into ways in which we behave. And scripture would tell us that men are to dress and look and act like men. Women are to dress and look and act like women. 
And yes, there will be cultural ways in which that's manifested. But in every culture, there's an expectation of, well, this is woman's clothing and this is men's clothing. This is the way that women do their hair. This is the way that men do their hair. So that might be different from culture to culture, but within those cultures, there are these distinctions. And scripture would call us to demonstrate his good creation and design by living in the way that he has called us to live. And many in our day would hear the kinds of things that God would say in his word here, and they would say that is regressive, and that is damaging to women, and that is harmful to women. And I would just encourage us to ask, as we really look around at our culture today, are families stronger? Is our culture stronger? Every study you look at really says people are less happy when they buy into the ideas of our world. Because that's not the way that God designed our world. Instead, let's embrace his good design. He made us male. He made us female. He made us men. He made us women. He wants us to live to glorify him in ways that match up with that reality. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that helps us to know who you are and what you want of us. Would help us to think of ourselves as you have created us, as you have designed us. Think of the way we are to live in light of what you have made us to be and how you then want us to live in light of that. And Lord, that's what will bring you the most honor and glory. And Lord, we thank you that in your goodness, that will also be what brings us our greatest good and our greatest joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.